We just finished chapter 22, which is why we're in chapter 23. <laughs> and in chapter 22, if you remember, um, there was some confrontations with the religious leaders and Jesus. Mainly the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees were in there too. Talked a little bit about the difference between the two. But. Um, and if you remember, there were these different things being brought up, like, do we have to pay taxes? Um, is the resurrection a real thing or not? Uh, what's the greatest commandment? That sort of thing. And Jesus kind of ends it by asking them a question and maybe a more important question or kind of honing in on, hey, here's, here's the thing that really matters that you need to understand. And that is who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? And Jesus gives them a little kind of tidbit um, from a psalm where he kind of points out that David referred to someone besides God as David's Lord. So we're saying there's, there was somebody even more significant that David points to besides just Yahweh God, but um, and where Jesus is, um, is that person. It kind of doesn't explain the rest of the dialogue there. In verse 46, if you remember, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> that was kind of funny. And, um, yeah, so um, in chapter uh, 23, Jesus is giving kind of some final words against the religious leaders of the day of, that, of his time. And... Um, it seems like kind of the overall indictment that Jesus is giving to the religious leaders is their refusal to recognize or receive him as Messiah. It's kind of the overarching um, theological thing that they're missing. But chapter 23 starts to talk about their conduct and some of kind of the, the outpouring of maybe what not believing Jesus looks like or just kind of some of the heart of how the Pharisees would go about life. And, um, and Jesus speaks quite uh, against the way that they're living. So we'll look at that. So first of all, um, we'll just kind of kind of work through some of this. I'll throw in a couple of my thoughts here and there, have some questions. Um, but in chapter 23, verse 1, it says this, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Um, Moses' seat, like if you remember back in the Old Testament, Exodus or so, Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of, he functions kind of like a judge, like the people bring him whatever their situation is, and he's kind of the supreme court leader guy that just says, here's what God's word is on it, here's the statutes of God, here's what his law is. And that ends up being spread at some point to other leaders as well. Um, but Jesus is saying the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In the synagogues of their day, there was actually a seat in the synagogues. Um, we don't know that it was referred to as Moses' seat, but it was like the seat that you teach from, maybe equivalent to, like in our, um, a lot of modern-day churches, you have like the pulpit, right? It's the big, heavy podium, and it kind of carries with it just, hey, this is where the, the God's law, God's truth is going to be taught, and um, there's some kind of maybe reverence to it. Um, and so we go on, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit on, on Moses' seat. They're kind of in that functional leading teaching role, explaining God's 
will is law. So practice and observe what they tell you, it says in verse 3, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus literally says, like, do what they, what is it, do what they say, not what they do kind of thing, which is, like, we know that's the worst kind of leadership, right? Like, that's that's the parent that you don't want to have. Hey, just do what I say. Um, and it's the opposite of what Jesus demonstrates. We saw um, in chapter 20, Jesus kind of saying and, and pointing out, hey, instead of, like, instead of here's what you have to do, Jesus is kind of showing, hey, I'm going to be an example. I'm going to show you how to go about doing this. Very different than the Pharisees' kind of leadership. Um, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. The Pharisees, he's talking about, and scribes, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So, does this sound like remind you guys of any other verse that we've, or passage of scripture specifically that we've seen in Matthew? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Yeah. Matthew 6, when he's saying, my burden is light. Yeah, I think it's Matthew 11. Yeah, but so he says, Jesus says, this is Jesus, as opposed to what the Pharisees are doing. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Jesus says that of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're not willing even to, um, to help in it. And so there's this contrast, again, of the, lead, the good leadership of Jesus and the leadership of the Pharisees. The burden of the Pharisees and scribes is this, it's, it's heavy, it's hard to bear, they don't help you in it, but the burden of Jesus, we saw earlier, it's light, and he goes before you in all of these days and is an example, and it's, it's good. <laughs> Verse 5, they do all their deeds, again, of the Pharisees, to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So phylacteries, um, some Jews practicing still wear these today. They're like the little kind of leather boxes that they'll wear. They'll tie to their forehead, they'll tie on their arm with all the leather straps that go around their arm. And you'll sing that, sing that before. Um, so something like that, and he's saying, man, they, they want to be seen by others, so they make those broad, and their, their fringes, the fringes are like probably on the four corners of their outer garment, they're like prayer fringes, or they're, they're to remind um, the um, Israelites, actually, it talks about in Deuteronomy and Numbers, but just to remind people to obey God, to keep his commandments, but these Pharisees, he's saying, they, they make those things big and long and noticeable and just they're, they're decorating themselves with those things, more or less. Verse 6, not all of it's going to take this much explanation. I just want to make sure we understand uh, what he's talking about here. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So they love all of these things. Hey, sorry. Um, rabbi kind of means teacher, right? But it's also like this, uh, almost like master, right? Like there are rules for your rabbi that you wouldn't, like you wouldn't walk alongside of them or in front of them because that would be disrespectful to your rabbi. Or you wouldn't, you, it's kind of like 
you don't speak unless you're spoken to kind of feeling with the rabbi. So somebody um, that that you look up to as a, as a teacher, as a master, and he says they love, these Pharisees love being called rabbi by others, and they love to sit in the high seats and be greeted in the marketplace, like all this, they just take this in and they love it. Do any of y'all like, know um, religious leaders who are like this? You don't have to like say their names, but like, have you ever run into these people? Or yeah. yeah, I have. Yes. So sometimes they're um, like maybe in in the circles that some of us are used to. They're like uh, rock star pastors that maybe if you've tried to like get around them, it's like, well, they're they're a little too cool for school, right? And so you. Um, Yes, security guard. And understandably, you know, some people have those things for maybe legitimate reasons, but I knew a a church leader several years back that um, he was, he would lead some ministries, but technically on the, and he was full-time church staff, his title wasn't pastor. It was just like director of this or that. And we would get together, I remember having a conversation with him, and how badly he wanted that title of pastor, like that job title of pastor, like for that to be on his business card or his office door or whatever. And I'm like, did that, like, I would ask him, what's going what's gonna to change when that happens? Like, are you going to just all of a sudden have some special knowledge or some... Like, what, what actually changes in your job responsibilities? You know, oh, nothing. You know, it's just, it'll be the same, but, but I'll just be recognized as, as a pastor. <laughs> um, and I thought that uh, really strange, maybe kind of an example of, of what's going on here, just the, I mean, that can bring some, like, um, oh, wow, they're a pastor. Even though, I, like, I think, I don't know, um, we haven't talked about it maybe much, but I think that title pastor, it's kind of weird that we use that as a job title, a job description, um, as opposed to just kind of a role within the church, and maybe, you know, but we've made it into, well, that's the person that um, has the um, vocational job of, uh, I don't know, um, but it's kind of silly because sometimes what, what comes along with it is just, oh, wow, well, that's the pastor. Well, don't bother the pastor with that. Or that's the senior pastor. They're especially like, oh, gosh, don't, don't um, mess with that guy or don't bother that guy. Um, anyway, these Pharisees, they're not pastors per se, but they love to be called rabbi by others. Verse 8. But you are not to, you know, maybe to everyone or just the people listening. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And no man, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let me ask you guys this. Like, what about, in our context, calling somebody, hey, that's a teacher, or that's an instructor, or even like a spiritual father? What if you call your dad father? Like, what's, can we 
actually not refer to people as teachers, like you are not to be called rabbi or father or instructor. I mean, there's other places in Scripture that, in the New Testament, that talk about like teachers within the church. And, um, You're asking if we can use those titles? Is that? Yeah. Like, what's what's Jesus getting at there? He's getting at them desiring those titles, huh? wanting that that to be called that. Yeah. He said, "You are not to be called like. Don't insist on people calling you that." And like what they attribute. attribute attribute to that, like the power and the the status that is title one with it, I think is like what he's getting at. It's like, like the great the great and powerful laws, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like hum like humble humble yourselves and like like you can't be um everyone's teacher and everyone's father like only god can do that yeah or at least we're we have we all are in submission to that kind of upper mm-hmm. level teacher and, and rabbi in jesus um yeah i think i mean it seems to be just an issue of pride um like like so many things with the scribes and pharisees um we have talked about before within our church passages like 1 Corinthians 12 that talk about how, how different people in the church kind of have different roles. And whatever your role is, whatever God's specifically given you to, to serve people or to come and good with, um, it's not that one role is greater or lesser, right? Like you can't say my, my gifting is better than this other person or my gift isn't needed. Like you can't say any of that. So it seems, yeah, it seems like he's not saying, okay, literally just make sure that nobody calls you these words father or else that something bad's going to happen. But it's the desire that comes along with that. It's the status symbol that kind of comes along with that. And I think that's, we can kind of see the, the main point there. He wraps up this little uh, paragraph with verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. It's not like the whoever is, is um teaching you is somehow greater than you. The only one that's greater than anybody else is Christ. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the better option, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So these Pharisees and scribes, they don't practice what they preach. Maybe they feel that they're above that. They place this heavy burden on people. They don't want to help them in that. They want to look spiritually devout and with all with their decorations and they want to just look really smart and have some status like what's one word that you would describe like what does jesus have against the pharisees kind of in these first few verses what are they demonstrating i'm not thinking of one in particular just pride, pride. The pretentious yeah pretentiousness ostentatiousness with an O, not an AU, like I thought before Randy drew it on board. <laughs> um, yeah, or authority, position, just to be well thought of. And that's kind of, it seems like the general attitude is we'll go through the rest of the chapter here um, that they all kind of carry with it. Everything that he's woeing the scribes and Pharisees for all have to do with just this, you, you want people to think you're really great or really good, and it has so much to do with pride. 
Um, and so it gives us a bunch of examples. This is called the popularly the seven woes, um, but kind of examples, I'd say, of kind of where that pride leads or how it plays out. So um, in verse 13, it says, but woe, or woe is just like we don't use it anymore. At least I don't go around saying, hey, woe to you. You've done something wrong. <laughs> but it's like this. this Adam does? Adam does? Whoa. Oh, whoa. That's right. Uh, yeah, woe is just, it's a cry of distress, just kind of symbolizing, hey, great trouble is going to come upon you. Like this, it's woe to, you guys understand woe. Um, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's going to say hypocrites, I think, six or seven times. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That seems to me like, what's the worst thing that you could do in life? It would be, be some kind of a barrier to somebody entering the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Dang. Like, just from what you kind of know of the Pharisees, maybe what we've studied, like how, why do you think Jesus would say that? Like, he doesn't really explain that here in this little context. Like, what, what how are they shutting the kingdom in people's faces and not entering themselves? Like, what does that mean? <clears throat> it's teaching, and just as he said before, um, like just calling them hypocrites to them not being doers of what they preach. Um, and then um, I also think that it was more to not the not wanting to be, them to be called father or teacher or whatever the case is because in that sense the people may be worshiping them and not the Christ or the creator. Um, and so those people aren't going into the kingdom because they're worshiping the leader versus Christ. Um, but yeah, I think a, a lot has to do with hypocrites of not actually living out what they preach. Mm -hmm. yeah, any other thoughts on that? And it's ironic because they're they're being I mean they're prideful and stuff, but it's like they look so right. Like they would look God honoring. Yeah. On the outside. Yeah. On the outside. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's kind of a it's a very it's ironic to me that it's like now Jesus is, you know, putting the smack down on them. There's no grace. It's all works. <laughs> yeah. There's no room for God. It's just what they're doing, right? Their pride and what they appear. Yeah. What were you going to say? Look at this. I was just laughing at Jesus laying the smack down. That's later in this. The thought I had is kind of similar to the one at the top, at the top where it talks about... Uh, Laying heavy burdens, hard to bear, and then shutting the the kingdom in people's faces has to do with seems to be have to do with making it so difficult by the onerous legal rules that that they have set up and mm -hmm. to to enter the kingdom, yeah. and that they themselves aren't getting it either. But they're they're making it so difficult that people can't really actually measure up yeah. to their standard of legalism. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That seems to be what it. 
what's going on? Yeah, I think it, it certainly has to do with conduct. I think it is, does probably refer maybe back to kind of the things they're doing as described in verse 4. Like you said, Randy. Um, Going back one more yeah. verse back, what does exalted mean? Um, lifted up to a place of honor. So, um, like in scripture, oftentimes we see that Christians have a uh, being exalted comes at a at a later time, it's something that's postponed. I can either be exalted now, like the Pharisees, they wanted people to kind of give them honor and say, oh, you're so great, and you're, we want to just like lift you up on our shoulders and carry you around, and you're so good. Um, that, that would be exalting man in this time, uh, where he's saying it's, I wouldn't say it's the opposite of humility, but it's, um, it's choosing to, like humility is choosing to take a low place instead of being lifted up to a high place. And so he's saying if we take the low place now in verse 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There will be a time when we'll be honored for our, the humility that we've expressed now. It's a similar thing that happens with Jesus. Like he's being, he's very humbly going through this life and even humbling himself, himself will see to the point of dying on the cross. Um, but in time, he will be exalted to sit at God's right hand. And so um, it's just to, uh, does anybody have a, a better definition than just kind of lifting up to kind of an honorable position? Does that it's sound? It's like putting yourself on a pedestal. That's kind of what I think of. If you put yourself up here. Um, yeah, if you exalt yourself. Yeah, versus humbly serving or um, thinking, not necessarily lowly of yourself, but thinking less of yourself. Does that make sense? So yeah, maybe it's these heavy burdens um, causing people to think, hey, you have to keep all of these extra laws in order to be admitted to heaven, where Jesus is, is saying the opposite of that. He's saying what you need is faith in Jesus, not faith in all that you can accomplish and how perfect that you can be. Or maybe it has to do with, in a little bit of the larger context, like the end of chapter 22, they're shutting people out of the kingdom by not recognizing Jesus as Messiah, because uh, that'll do it. Um, but, uh, but man, what a, what a horrible thing that they're involved in. And then uh, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch. So he's um, saying, hey, you're, you're working hard to make converts, but you're converting people to the wrong thing. You're converting to sal people to salvation by your rules, which is no salvation. Um, Again, you don't have to like say somebody's name out loud, but do you guys know anyone that's like this, that in, in the name of God even, tries really hard to convince people about God's existence, or they try to convert people to God, but in all of that, they're converting them to the wrong thing? Like they're, they're missing something? Do you all know um, people like that? Like it seems like, man, they're, they're working really hard at this for conversions, but, are, but they're not really teaching the truth of what we believe about Jesus. Mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. 
I think oftentimes it comes down to people teaching any kind of works-based salvation, right? Um, you have to do this in order to gain favor with God. Or maybe it's people that are teaching a vague idea of God, but not teaching about Jesus specifically. I've been to several Christian, quote, use loosely, um, conferences or retreats where the speaker will be asked to give a gospel presentation or to some terminology or denomination say call for a decision or give a you know altar call or you know there's different things that you call it and they'll do that but in doing that their explanation of of the good news of the gospel it says nothing about Jesus it's just kind of man if you just feel bad about your life and you just really want to be close to God, then just you're, you're saved. Let's let's pray. You're saved, and it's like, well, that's you're converting them to oh, God just makes me feel better about myself. Well, that's not the gospel. Like the gospel involves forgiveness of sin and, and um, eternal life and a confession of um, our own sin and repentance. And, um, There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So these people, these Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is saying, you're not making children of God like you think with all your rules and regulations. You're making children of, what's he saying? Children of hell. Like twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Dang. Yeah, Kim. My, um, mine says child of Hellas. Mm-hmm. H-E-L-L-A-S. Yeah. It's, um, I think the Greek word is Gehenna or Gehenna. Um, okay. Which is usually translated hell. You know, there's several kind of different ideas of hell. There's, there's that all have their own nuance from Hades and Sheol oh, and God. there's all these different things. But I googled it and it said Hellas means Greece. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, well, <laughs> I mean, I there's I can understand um, like oftentimes those who are without God um, are, are referred to as Greeks, right? Mm. Um, and so I don't I don't know all of the etymology behind the word, but. Okay. Um, but it's supposed to mean hell in this context? Whatever it's supposed to mean, it's not good. <laughs> um, whether it's Greece or no. Uh, um, but yeah, I think most translators just uh, typically translate that word as, as hell. But, um, mm-hmm. but it's not, in, in light of the context, you're not converting people to become children of heaven or the kingdom. Right. And it seems to be quite the opposite of that, which, um... But is that what yours says, too? What's that? Hellas? Is that what yours says, too? Mm, hell has a footnote. Yeah, and the footnote is really gaining on what you were saying. Yeah. Okay. Just trying to figure out why mine says that. Maybe, um, if I remember, we can look into it. Yeah. What version is it? ESV. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's why I'm like, I don't... Just a typo in the app, I guess. 
This is. Uh, They're from Northern California. Hello. Hello. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, that's a good question, Kim. Maybe we can move on, though. I'm not exactly sure. Some okay. translation. I just had. I just had the wrong one. I guess it's fine. Yeah. Um, I I would ask you guys to just consider. Oh, you know, sorry. It's probably hell as yourselves. Child of hell as yourselves. Because oh, yeah. because in my thing, there's a couple of things where like it it does like words together, like rabbi and then by, so it's rabbi. Yeah, and yours there says hell as. Yeah. It's sorry. together. Yeah. Got it. Another thing that, that might be helpful, in, in verse 33 of the same chapter, it talks about being sentenced to hell. So he's probably going to get to that, but that's seemingly the, uh, the judgment part of uh, that he's speaking to there. So anyway. That's why group Bible study is important. Even like <laughs> <laughs> no, I literally, without oh, you guys, I would have sat here forever being, what is heaven? <laughs> and after that, it says yourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep, we figured it out. Cool. Sorry, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of to drop this into our laps a little bit more, like, do, do we ever do something like this where the, the gospel or so-called gospel that we preach um, isn't, isn't quite helping people in their entrance into the kingdom. I'll give an example of how I've felt oftentimes. Um, I have an increasing number of non-Christian friends who, when they're around me, they morally kind of keep it together a little bit more. Um, so for example, I'll meet somebody and they'll just have a really kind of hateful, foul mouth, and then after a couple of few conversations it's like all of a sudden they're a little more kind with what they say and you know there's like this um, moral conformity for whatever reason that happens um, and I've thought to myself before like is I don't want to communicate to somebody that we're Christian that we're saved because we're good but that we're good because we're saved you know and so I don't want people to think well Christianity is just about trying to be moral and be a good person. That's not the essence of what we believe. That That's involved in our sanctification, that God makes us more good. Um, but, but yeah, I, I've, I've thought to myself, I want people to trust Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, not in themselves. I think like the Pharisees maybe were promoting. I don't, do you guys have any, any thoughts on that or any other ways we might not, we might kind of, miss the the gospel and actually kind of hinder people from their understanding of the kingdom of heaven and how to be right with God. I'm not looking for anything. It is really interesting here, especially, I think, because people are so about, I, especially even this time of year, like, I want to be a better person, so I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and I'll find it within myself mm -hmm. to create this reality. And I've had several of my friends say that aren't followers of Christ or anything, but they're like, maybe with I'd like that peace that you have, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, well, it didn't come from me. Like, there's nothing that I've done for that or could even try to get there, you know, but it is something, it's just a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's outside of myself. Like, I don't think you can find that within yourself, but I think that's 
so opposing to everything the world says mm-hmm. because it's all about finding it within you yeah. for happiness or peace or whatever when I would say no I had no joy I had I was not happy and mm-hmm. it wasn't from myself but to get to that state so I love what Mary Beth does often I'll see this in conversation she'll Oftentimes, like if somebody's talking about how, oh, you're you're such a good person, or like oftentimes with Mary Beth, we think, oh, she could never do anything wrong, right? Um, Not these guys, they know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's oftentimes I appreciate so much Mary Beth will very intentionally in the conversation. I think to make sure that people are understanding the the kingdom of heaven and what God desires, she'll very intentionally in the conversation point out what she just said. No, this is. This is not something, like, this life that I have is not something that I've produced. This hope that I have is not something that I just dug down deep and was able to make happen. And so I think that's a really good illustration of, or good application of not wanting to be um, like the Pharisees that were trying to point to some kind of external rule-keeping morality type thing. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? I haven't had it so much for non-believers, more so for believers. Mm-hmm. Um, having that conversation, quite the opposite, mm-hmm. um, but more of like, you might as well sin because you clearly don't know the Lord, and what you're doing is not going to get you in heaven anyway. Uh, but she just had this conversation where it was more of, more of the Holy Spirit talking because like this person needed to hear like, what you're doing doesn't matter. You know, you need to give it to to the Lord. You need Christ for this, and you trying to do it yourself hasn't ended well. Um, but like, I've had a conversation more with believers of seeing them do the of getting um, bogged down by the works mm-hmm. and forgetting Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't had it so much with non-believers, but I don't share the gospel as much as I should with my non-believers friends either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and Jesus is speaking specifically to what the scribes and Pharisees are doing, but I think it's good always that we don't be too quick to point the finger before kind of asking mm-hmm. ourselves, hey, what's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a heart attitude that he's describing in these Pharisees, and we need to let me check ourselves. So, verse 16 says, woe to you, blind guides. Like, that, that's rough. He is not mincing words here. Woe to you, blind guides. Just think about that. Like, they're, they're supposed to be the people who are leading the Jews in, in their understanding of God and how to walk with the Lord and he's saying that they're not guides but they're blind blind guides who say if anyone and just we'll read through these next few verses and try to make sense of it if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing. This is what the Pharisees are saying. If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. 
I don't know if you all remember, but several months ago in Matthew chapter 5, it talks a little bit about oaths in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I kind of mentioned how, or I don't remember if it was me or Randy or who mentioned, but um, how in the day, like the Pharisees, they talk about, well, what is a binding oath? Like if you swear by this, then it really counts. And if you swear by this, well, it doesn't, it's not binding. You don't have to keep what you said. And if you swear, and um, kind of the point of all of that in, in Matthew chapter 5 was Jesus is saying, hey, don't swear by anything. Remember, he says, let your less, yes be yes and your no be no. Like just be an honest person, say what you mean, and don't try to have these little caveats so that you can actually lie sometimes and not be accountable for it. So if you have something, if you some, I wrote this, if you sometimes have to swear to something, it means you're lying about other things, right? Well, this time I swear on the Holy Bible, or I swear to God, or I swear on my grandmother's grave. It's like, well, that just means, on the other times, then you weren't serious, and you weren't going to keep your word on those other, like this time you mean it the other time. It just means that we're looking for ways to deceive, and, um, and maybe in similar ways to the Pharisees, or at least the Pharisees are getting caught up on all of their kind of nitpicky ways to describe, well, when do you have to, when is what you say binding? And they're using this odd, like, you can swear by the temple itself, and it doesn't matter, but if you swear by the gold of the temple. And so it's, there's a little bit of, like, don't distinguish between swear to this, swear to that. You're, you're all swearing before God. Like, God is hearing it all. We kind of get to it at the end. But he's saying it doesn't even make sense what you guys are studying up. We swear by the gold of the temple, but it doesn't matter if you swear by the temple. Well, what's more important, the gold or the actual like temple itself? And what's more important, the gift on the altar or the altar itself? And um, so, so he ends in verse 20 saying, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears on the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Every promise that we make Every time that we say, I will do this, or here's the truth, it's not only before man, but it's before God himself, God's ears, and he, like, we have an accountability to that, regardless of what you said. Well, this is the little caveat, and this is, and they would spend so much of their time, it seems, the Pharisees and scribes just kind of debating or, or trying to figure out, well, was this, is this legitimate oath or not? And he, it does, he, I, it's no surprise that he calls them blind uh, fools, like it doesn't even make sense the way that you're trying to justify this actions, but you're so like wrapped up in these details that it, you're blind to it. You're blind fools, um, and really, probably the only reason they're being so picky on whether an oath is binding or not is because they want to get away with lies. So, just kind of a, a something for us to think about in this, like we did in Matthew five. Like, are we people of our word? Do we realize that everything that we says, everything that we say, God hears? Or are we like people that just kind of go by these, you know, little lies? Well, I wasn't really serious in that when I said, "Yeah, I'll pray for you," or "I'll call you," or "Hey, I'll pay you back." Or I'll be there in 10 minutes, right? These are things that we say that it's like, we can kind of get by with, um, with saying these little white lies. But, um, 
you know, are we people of our word? I, I wonder if, like, we could just consider for a second, hey, is there anything, like, that we want to repent of that's like, we need to, we don't want to be like these scribes and Pharisees and any of these things that we're reading, but just who, who are so consumed with, like, these little details to try to just justify our actions. Are we people of our word? Are we, do we just, like, can we see the good? We'll talk about this in, in the next little section, but can we just see the, the bigger picture of what's good and what we know is good and what we ought to do and just do that and stop trying to, like, make little justifications and just kind of spin our wheels? Um, and specifically in this example, just, I think it's, hey, can, are, are we... Are we honest? I think it goes back to Matthew 5. A lot of these woes are very similar, kind of opposite of what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, so I think it's a similar thing we have to ask ourselves. Hey, is, are, are we people um, who just let our yes be yes and our no be no? Verse 23. Woe to you. There's another woe. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, I love this word picture, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're putting, he's saying of the scribes and Pharisees, you're putting so much focus on these less important kind of additions to uh, what God's word would actually say instead of really caring about the significant things that God really wants to move us towards, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. I love that you're 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 straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So you're so you're just worried about this this one little kind of thing that you've created. Well, in the meantime, you're missing everything that God wants to do through you, um, that you would be faithful and full of justice and mercy. Can y'all think of like other places in Scripture that kind of have a similar tone to this, neglecting the weightier matters, and and doing things that just matter less but may seem religious. Is that a lot of the book of Isaiah? Yeah, and, and several of the prophets, but yeah, Isaiah included. Um, about 633 of them, says, Seek first the kingdom of God. These things will be added to you like prayer. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. that, that that might be similar. Maybe um, like oh, I put down. Uh, this is a Old Testament prophet Hosea. God says through him, "For I desire steadfast love and sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings." Or Proverbs twenty-one: "To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice." Maybe these things were legitimate, like ways to honor God, like we need to just figure out with everything that we have, how do we tithe on this and mint and dill and cumin and whatever, but um, like Micah 6 says, he's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. 
Um, or even like we read earlier in Matthew, I'll read it from the book of Mark. It said, Jesus says, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Or Romans says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Like, let's not get caught up with, well, I shouldn't eat this and I should eat this and that sort of thing. But no, the kingdom of God is about so, so much more than that. I, Psalm one or 51, for, for you, uh, David says of the Lord, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Um, I wonder, like, do you all ever get, or do you know someone who gets really wrapped up in moralism and rules of Scripture or even trying to add a little bit to the rules of Scripture so that you can keep the rules of Scripture? Um that you think to yourself of this person, why are you spending so much time on that minute thing when you know what's right? Just strive after what is right and and move on. Stop wasting your time in that battle. Do you guys know of anybody like that? Or, or maybe I should ask this, like, do you actually ever get hung up on certain things? So like, I'll, for example, in scripture, um, we learn uh, not to be drunk. We learn that we ought to be law-keeping, and maybe in our um, society that would be not illegally smoking pot for maybe in North Hollywood, especially here. Um, or, or we ought not to be fornicators. But in these little things, we can start asking like these little questions. Well, in drunkenness, like how much like can I have two drinks and not? You know, three drinks, is that okay? And, or with the um, smoking pot, like, well, what if I have a card and what's well, okay if I had a headache to get the card? Or um, or maybe like with fornication, like in, in dating relationships, we say, well, how, you know, how can I do this, like, physically with this person? Is this okay? And we're, we're like trying to figure out all, all of these little things versus, no, like, God wants us to strive for love and faithfulness and purity and not like, how can we just try to detail around these things and kind of justify and feel good about the things that we're doing. Just kind of to summarize again, like what God really wants from us, I think this goes back to just uh, a week ago, or two weeks ago, um, when the Pharisee asks, um, a lawyer asks Jesus, What's the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. If you can keep those two, you're going to be keeping all of them. Mm-hmm. So instead of starting down here, how can we do all of these little things? Let's not forget about the weightier matters. Or let's not misprioritize we're spending our time. So like what um, I forgot to mention like even in, in good things like it seems like maybe tithing mint and dill and cumin those are like that's not necessarily avoiding some sin and figuring out how we can justify sin but like what about like good things even 
that we can get like really nitpicky on that maybe scripture doesn't even say. For example, um, well, you didn't have a quiet time today. You need to have a quiet time every morning. Um, or you need to, like, that person didn't pray before their meal. Or that person didn't go to church last Sunday. Or, you know, all of these little things. And it's like, well, those aren't bad. And even with the sin, yeah, we should avoid drunkenness and break. Like, we should be obedient. We should care about scripture. We should care about our fellowship with other believers. But when we start getting so just focused in on, on just those specific acts and trying to put rules and stuff around those, I think we're missing the point of what those things are supposed to actually provide for us and as we live our lives. So, so you might have a person, just to end this little section, you might have a person who, like Matthew 22 says, loves the Lord with all their heart, they love their neighbor as their self, but maybe they didn't pray before dinner. And that person still may be doing the right thing. And I think God's going to be pleased with that person versus the person who's praying before every meal who doesn't really give a rip about God or give a rip about their neighbor. So, uh, Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I, I think we kind of understand what this is saying, at least... Um, I feel like, at least in my upbringing, I considered this a lot. Well, you don't want to just be clean on the outside when the inside is spoiling away. Um, just to tell you something that I learned in this whitewashed tomb, I just kind of thought that meant like a cleaned tomb, like that looks good, but it has a rotting body on the inside, right? But the idea of being whitewashed, it, just from some study that I did, it seems that. Um, but, like there's monuments and things that, that people, especially back in the day, would build. Um, some of them representing events, some of them actually being a grave or on, on top of a tomb or carcasses or whatever. And you would whitewash to any kind of a monument to say there's something buried underneath this. Whitewashing means it's, it's, like a, it's almost like painting or using a... Uh, yeah, like caution tape, or, but it was like lime or something that they put on so it would turn white and it would signify to people you, you're going to be unclean or stay away from this because there's a dead body underneath versus something else that's not whitewashed that it's like, oh, this is just a beautiful monument that was built, but there's no dead bodies underneath. So um, it doesn't, I don't think the application really changes at all, it just, except just to say this is just another way that Jesus is saying, if he's calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, it's stay away from these guys. Um, just like you would from a tomb that has this marking of being whitewashed. Um, and I think, we won't spend a lot of time here, but it seems like a good summary. It's just Jesus doesn't want external displays of religion, like cleaning the outside of things, but the inside is dirty. 
I wonder, like, just again to consider our own application. What would that look like for us, like in our own current context? What would what would an an application if someone's going to be kind of Pharisee like? Um, what what might they do in our context? We probably don't think much about tombs, and we don't really have a lot of cleaning rituals. But what would we do in our lives? Or what have people done, or what have you done to kind of appear really good on the outside, but not on the inside? I can be so angry, and then um, because whatever in the days not going my way, or I don't know, I just feel angry. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, we got people coming here in five minutes, so <laughs> just smile, and hope it's gonna be all right. Like just kind of. But it's not really the state that my heart's in. So it's something that I want to maybe appear like I'm okay. But no, I'm actually like angry for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever the emotion is that I want to hide. Um, but it's easy to do with, you know, when you've got, or if that we're in an argument in the car right before we get somewhere and then I just kind of like, just be nice. <laughs> I just, you know. <laughs> Um, but it's not truly, um, my heart is not right in it, necessarily. Yeah. But I don't want to appear um, angry. Yeah. Any other ideas on that? What about stuff like, well, I want to show up at church service every week. That looks good. <laughs> I drop money in the offering plate every week that it goes around. I think it's hard. It's hard sometimes to like um, admit your sin to people because you want to rep- like for me like I want to represent Jesus well. So I don't. I don't want people to not know that I have a, that I have a sinful heart. You know because I do because. And human and not Jesus but I think that it can be scary to share your your sin with people because you still want to represent Jesus well and you don't want you don't want people to think you're hypocritical or something um so so like that's something I, I think I struggle with is like I want to appear like I want to appear like a good Christian, not, not, you know, for the wrong reasons, because I want to represent Jesus well, but I think that sometimes um, we can get caught up in it, and then, and then it is hypocritical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what, like, have you guys heard before, like, people walking into a church or something that people can't stand about the Christian church, even Christians, because they walk in and everybody has a smile and everything's going just right and nobody's like honestly kind of talking about what's going on in their life and they just feel like everybody's a hypocrite, right? And everybody's just wearing a smiley mm-hmm. face and then they get back in the car and yell at their wife and kids and whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing too that, that Jesus is seeming to be getting at here and from, right from verse 25 and all this is that the authentic righteousness is, is very personal. Just kind of like back in the Sermon ser- on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, but I want you to be really like this inside yeah. of your heart. And, and the the authentic righteousness that he's asking them to have has nothing to do with anybody else. 
it's 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 something between you and God that's real, that that He's saying clean the inside of the cup, and you yep. know, alluding to their, to your heart and your sin and, and dealing with your sin and having God deal with your sin, whereas you can fake the outward appearance, you can look exactly like sure, a person yeah. and not be, not have that going on. So I think He's really really getting at the fact that they're doing everything in a, in a human appearance sort of way, but not really getting real righteousness and repentance in their heart. Yeah. And so the, the one is the one is a real thing, the one is just a, a, a pretend pretension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you teaching in Matthew 6, just that, I mean, that's very much the idea of, like, what do you do in secret mm-hmm. when nobody else can see? Well, that's telling you really what's going yeah. on in your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and they're the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, <laughs> I put a confession on here for myself. I have actually like been on my computer studying the Bible, and then when I know somebody's going to come to the door or somebody's going to walk in the room, I'll like, put, like open up my Bible so they know that I'm studying the Bible, right? Or, or I, like, I don't want them to think that I'm just, like, hanging out on Facebook and whatever. Or sometimes when I am hanging out on Facebook, I'm sure I've done this. I'll be like, well, I don't want somebody to think that, so I'll at least open my Bible here. You know? I don't know. Do you, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Oh, so But no, I, and I wonder, I mean, are there things, I think that's something we can kind of evaluate in our own heart, and what what might, how might we need to repent just mm-hmm. of things that are going on secretly in kind of our inner man that um, that are not right. So um, let me blow through verse twenty nine through thirty six. Um, uh, it says this: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, like if we had lived back in the day when the prophets were speaking, we would have heeded their words of repentance, unlike our fathers. It's kind of like when, I think when a Christian now says, oh, well, if I was back in Jesus' day, when he, the crowds were yelling, crucify him. Well, I wouldn't have, you know, I never would have done that. Kind of maybe a similar sort of thing. Um, verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Like he's saying, we wouldn't have done what our fathers did, but, but you, like you're witnessing against yourself because your son, you are their sons, and you're going to actually do the, the same thing, which he's going to describe here in a second. He says, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's now, and it was common kind of in Jewish thought that there was judgment was going to come, final judgment was going to come when sin had kind of reached its peak and when things couldn't get any worse, then that's when God was going to bring judgment. But Jesus is applying like that very concept to the scribes and Pharisees saying, fill up then the, the measure, the full measure of your fathers. Like you guys are, are bringing on um, this judgment. And then in verse 33, it says... Um, you serpents, I mean, this is just strong, strong language, serpents, you brood or offspring of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
And it's kind of a, I think that's a rhetorical question. They have nothing really to answer to that. Therefore, I send you prophets. It's like Jesus is saying, here, watch what I'm going to do now. You say that you wouldn't have persecuted or killed the prophets like they did, like your fathers did. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, probably including Jesus, maybe some of the apostles, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So it's like Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to send more prophets and more spokespeople on my behalf, and you're going to treat them the same way that your fathers treated them that you said that you wouldn't do. And he kind of lists these good men who were murdered in Scripture, Abel and Zechariah. That's, it's like, what the heck does that mean? But really, um, Abel was like the first so-called innocent person to have his blood spilled right back in Genesis 4 or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And um, in the Hebrew canonized scripture in the time, Zechariah was one of the last persons described to have their blood spilled innocently. So we would say, like sometimes we say, hey, from Genesis to Revelation, this is like um, to the Jews of the day. It's like saying from the spilling of the blood of Abel to the spilling of the blood of Zechariah, like everybody who's had innocent blood spilt. Um, basically, Jesus seems to be saying their blood, just like on your father's hands, it's on your hands. And very interestingly, and um, it, it seems like there's this um, this verse 35 kind of anticipates something that happens in chapter 27. Um, you guys remember when Pilate kind of washes his hands, he can't really find any reason to um, crucify Jesus. And he washes his hands saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You guys remember this? Mm-hmm. Innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, oh, they answered, his blood be on us and on our children. I think that's kind of a, a little foreshadowing of what's happening here in verse, um, in verse 35. It's just another kind of Pharisaical righteousness saying, well, we would, we would never persecute God's messengers to us when Jesus says, well, yes, you, you would, and yes, you will. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Um, I'm going to, for time's sake, not make maybe some comments that could be made on uh, some of these things, and maybe Randy will kind of touch on it as he... Um, shares the next couple chapters, but y'all, this is like strong, strong language that we see Jesus use here. It's calling the Pharisees blind guides, fools, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, children of hell, serpents, brood of vipers, and all of this is, it's not addressed to all Jews, it's not addressed to all Jewish leaders, it's addressed specifically to a group of Pharisees and scribes in this day. Um, But it's interesting that Jesus uses this strong, strong language, the strongest language, and even other strong language that we've seen in Matthew, for people who are the most seemingly religious. It's people who maybe do the most for God visually, externally, even leaders. It's those people who Jesus is using this woe language against who it seems to be are maybe deepest, most deeply rooted in their sin, or people that are most... Um, against God. He uses this strong 
strong language against the religious people, these seven woes, woe after woe after woe, it's this repeated thing, which means it's important. And I think it just points out, hey, the gospel isn't a recognition of how good we are, but of how good Jesus is. And I used to think, man, people are way more off base who live really licentious lifestyles, who just live in their sin. Like I used to think, well, that's way worse than somebody who just struggles with like legalism. But it seems like Jesus is very against pharisaical outward righteousness, um, just as much or even maybe more dramatically than against the people who are just um, living in the world. And so just to kind of like wrap this up, and then I'm just going to kind of read the ending, but if you guys had to finish this sentence, how would you finish this? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because... Like, just wrap that up, kind of try to summarize some of these things, maybe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because, and then just a little phrase. What do you think? You think you're good enough. Hmm. Yeah. When you're and, really and you're full not. of sin. Mm-hmm. When you're really full of sin. But they don't, they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pro- probably a hypocrite idea. That's, you, mm-hmm. you think this, or you're trying to display this, but you're not. That's what he says to hypocrites so many times. You are self-righteous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have forgotten me. Not me, but Jesus, or uh, the Alabama. Not Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, and, and again, yeah, that's what Jesus wants them to, and Matthew wants people to realize they need Jesus, they need faith in Jesus, they don't need faith in their own conduct. Yeah. Who do you guys think um, Jesus might call today, if any? Uh, Serpents, brood of vipers, children of hell, blind fools. Like, do you think Jesus might have a a similar message? This is historically unique, what's going on here, but like maybe you, maybe that's somebody in your mind, maybe it's somebody who's somebody in our day and age who's claiming to teach the way to God, but they don't give the specificity of Jesus, or those who preach that salvation comes from Jesus plus a few other works that you have to do, or maybe somebody that it displays this ostentatious kind of show of just wanting to be in the limelight and appear good. Somebody who tries to justify their sin by figuring out kind of a little loophole so that everything they do is okay. Yeah, I mean, I can think of, like, recognizable people who I would put in that category, but I also see myself in some of those categories. Yeah. Like, you know, there are times where, like, I, you know, like, appear very, like, righteous and, like, an ideal Christian, whatever that is, in my head, you know? Yeah. But then, like, I'm, like, so sinful, like, daily. Like, God, like, shows me, like, your areas. Like, oh, you're prideful, you're this. Mm-hmm. Like, just, there's, like, a list of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that's all of us, but I think like the difference is like acknowledging that and like taking it back to Jesus versus just like trusting in yourself. Yeah. Which is yeah, key difference between us and these particular Pharisees is we repent and we make a recognition. So there's there's a 
I think that removes the hypocrisy, at least, right, to say I'm not trying to, I'm just being honest with who I am and who God is and how I need Jesus. I don't think we will be without pride in any of those things. It's more of that recognition and that repentance. Yeah. To be without it, we aren't here anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think that that is very much the key point. I think there's uh, other religions that mm-hmm. they work for their righteousness, like um, the Indian religion that I come from. They'll try to mix Christianity with their own mm-hmm. um, heritage and and do when they uh, smoke the pipe, the prayers are in that smoke and I know they have a lot a lot of things that they add on with the gospel mm-hmm. and it's just all self righteousness. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the Catholic Church who always add on different things mm-hmm. to their righteous to the without taking the word of God for what it says. Like there's all kinds of other religions out mm-hmm. there that do that. Um, I, when you, when you asked that question, I had like a ton of lit, like a, I could see a scroll of um, things going down my uh, Facebook feed, essentially. <laughs> 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 like just politicians, things going on, you know, just tons and tons of just people just Roll down my Facebook feed essentially. Yeah. Build in social media. It's like. <laughs> yeah, I had that in my notes here too. Like, what about just a Facebook rant that makes somebody? It's just somebody wanting to like come across as really maybe better than they are. Some, I mean, some of it's perfectly good-hearted and fine. Like, I'm not saying you can't make a, a comment on Facebook, but but not if it's done with a Pharisaical heart, so that you'll look good. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's the idea. Like this, the the ones that say um, say something, they say something really good, and then they'll say, um, um, share if you agree, ignore if if yeah. you don't agree. You know what I mean? Stuff yeah. like that is like, yeah. I ignore it, but I, even though I agree with it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna share. I'm not gonna share because yeah. it just seems like a just so. Um, Pushy or something. It's like <laughs> the one right now in a couple of my um, news feed is uh, my name is so and so and I believe in Jesus Christ. If you deny him here, then he will deny you at the like. Oh, yeah. What well, is like copy and paste? If That's you believe, so will you? <laughs> and uh, like, and will you be ashamed of him? And you know, yeah. I was like, uh. if you don't agree, then ignore. Or keep strolling. It'll say something like that. If you're saved, you must like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, we see all of these woes. Uh, um, Matthew 23, um, one commentator said, Condemnation predominates, but it is neither vindictive nor spiteful so much as judicial. Jesus the Messiah pronounces judgment. It's not like Jesus is out of control just ranting on these guys. In fact, in the Sorry, next, can you repeat that again? Yeah. In Matthew 23, condemnation predominates, like he's condemning the, the heart and actions of the Pharisees, but it is neither vindictive nor spiteful so much as judicial. Like the, this is a, a judicial call, and we're going to see, like in these last three verses, that it's not just Jesus just hates these guys and just can't you know stand the way that they're living, but there's actually uh, seemingly a heartbrokenness to Jesus in this. So, 
um, this is like this is such a, a sweet way to end this chapter I think um, not sweet for the people of the day in fact it's probably maybe the greatest tragedy ever that God's people were rejecting this gift of Jesus um, but um, it says this in, in verse 37 so after all of this kind of woe to you for living these ways oh Jerusalem Jerusalem this is maybe the last words possibly that Jesus kind of publicly um, speaks to Israel um, in, his, in this life you know, oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how now listen to the like loving compassionate language how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood or offspring under her wings and you would not like the I think it literally is I wanted and you didn't want or something like that see your house is left to you desolate for I tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is, I think, kind of leads into what, um, some of the questions and things that will come up in chapter 24 and 25. Um, but isn't this like just the most heartfelt, like Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, like how often I would have, like such loving language, fatherly, motherly language, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood on her wings and you would not. Now there's a time, uh, according to Romans 11, it seems that when, when Israel and Jerusalem will recognize Jesus as Messiah, but that time isn't going to come before this tragedy of the leaders um, rejecting their Messiah, even to crucifixion, and this tragedy of their land being wiped out and the temple being destructed. Um, just a short time after this. But like at this point of Jesus looking at this city and proclaiming this, it's it's the greatest or the worst tragedy of all time, it seems, um, that God's special people, he's giving them this gift who's not only a prophet, a truthful prophet, he's not only the ultimate priest, he's not only a perfect king that they never quite had, but he's the son of God himself and he's being rejected, which brings woe to the leaders, and it brings, it seems, grievance to the heart of Jesus. And so we can see in chapter 23 that it gets this cool balance of not only the judgment and, and speaking out against a people, but also his sorrow in doing so.